This morning we're in this text, 2 Corinthians 9, because this is the second week where we are talking about what it means for us as a church to consider our Antioch moment. If you're a first-time guest with us today, this is a little bit of a different message. We're having a congregational meeting tonight, which is our gathering of our members, and we're going to consider a budget for next year and also some key directional uh, markers for us as a church family. So we'd love to have you come back next week as we launch into a uh, theology conference weekend on the subject of racial harmony. And this Sunday, though, we're in 2 Corinthians 9, talking about particularly the matter of generosity. Last week I suggested that the church in Antioch was a model for us to consider as a church, uh, the kind of church that, that multiplied its efforts, the kind of church that was able to make a difference in the world in which that particular church was planted. And I suggested to you that the focus shifts in the book of Acts from the church at Jerusalem, which is primarily a Jewish audience, to now the church in Antioch, which is a multi-ethnic congregation. In fact, that's why one of the reasons that they were called Christians is because the culture didn't know what to call them. They weren't Jewish, they weren't Gentile. This was an unusual gathering of people. And I suggested to you last week that our objective is to see some markers for us as a church so we could be like the church at Antioch to multiply the gospel. And so over the next 12 to 18 months, here are the four things that we're leaning into in terms of our strategy. We want to reach our world to deepen our discipleship, develop our leaders, and maximize our resources. And tonight, we'd love to have you come back as I'll walk through some additional things regarding uh, what that strategy means, what that looks like, and uh, what it means for us to do life together. This is an important gathering tonight for us as a congregation. We're a congregationally governed church, so we're not a Presbyterian model or an Episcopal model. We're a congregational model. In order for that model to work, members have to show up at members' meetings. Members have to vote to approve budgets. And uh, tonight, we're going to also talk about our church governance model so you can understand how do things work and what are relationships between our pastors and the elder council. And there's been a number of things just uh, in the news in the last couple months that we feel like this is an important time just to re-emphasize. Here's how we do governance. And also, there's been just some things related to finances and churches that are just kind of out there and um, want you to come tonight to know how we handle our money as a church and you as a church member need to be involved in that uh, congregational meeting because if a member doesn't use their membership vote, then congregationalism as a model doesn't work. And we think it's the best model, but if members are like, ah, oh, you got it, and they never come, the model breaks down. And so really, the success and the health of the church depends upon you, and one of those things is coming to members' meeting. Our strategic plan last um, week shared those four things with you. It includes a lot. I asked our staff for some feedback regarding last week's sermon, and so they gave me some feedback. The first thing they said was this, Mark, as you went through the story of Saul and Barnabas as they were being sent out from Antioch, some people asked us if you are leaving. <laughs> Do they want me to leave? You know, so I said, no, we're not going anywhere. So just so you know, we're, it was not a precursor to, hey, a surprise announcement tonight. Uh, secondly, some people, as we heard, as they heard the idea of both, uh, a church of both, meaning we've got 
lot of different things that we do. We have both small groups and adult big groups. We have a theology conference that's coming up next weekend. We just had a big women's conference a couple weeks earlier. We've got urban outreach. We've got global outreach. We've got, you know, urban uh, vision trips. We've got global vision trips. We do a lot that sometimes it's maybe confusing or maybe a bit overwhelming if you're just a standard congregant to know what you should do. And some of you kind of feel guilty because you can't do it all. I just want to let you off the hook. We don't expect you to do it all. We want you to figure out how to belong, how to grow, how to multiply as it relates to where you are in your season of life. We have fewer kids at home. We have a little more margin in our life. We can do things differently than how we did when we could barely survive, it seemed, when we had little kids around. And so we want you just to think through, hey, in light of my gifts, in light of my time and abilities, how can I use those gifts for the advancement of God's kingdom? And so don't want you to be involved in some sort of guilt inducement, but rather we just want to lay things before you and say, hey, does this work for your own spiritual development? The third feedback point they gave was this, this idea of maximizing our resources. I didn't go into much detail in that, and that was by design. Because today what we're going to do is we're going to unpack the way in which multiplication movements are fueled by generosity. You find that over and over. It's the same thing's been true of this church, that as the gospel spreads, the gospel is not only multiplied, but generosity is behind it. So generosity then is a natural extension and an amplifier of God's grace. Show me a church that's on mission, show me a church that multiplies itself, and I'll show you a generous people. They're generous with their time, with their talent, and also with their treasure. For instance, this building that we all worship in every single Sunday, we started using this space in 2011. By my calculation, we've had 1,500 services since 2011 in this space. Think of how many times the gospel has been proclaimed, how many people whose lives have been changed. The number of times when, and I hear, I get emails from someone, like it, it, the light bulb went on and they understood the beauty of the gospel. And for those of you who were here in 2009 to 2012 who helped to fund this building, you actually share in the spiritual um, benefit and the spiritual investment of being a part of making this facility happen. Those of you who weren't here, you would need to know that they're in the middle of a great recession. This church needed to build some additional space. The elders drew a line in the sand and said, unless we have $12.5 million in commitment, we're not going to build this building or renovate the rest of it. And our elders have proven when they draw a line in the sand, they mean it. <laughs> and this congregation, with the stock market at about 6000 if I remember right, pledged not only twelve point five. this church pledged $14.6 million to build this space. And those of you who've come after that, you've benefited from the generosity of others. I don't say that to, to guilt you. I just want you to know there are some people who gave very sacrificially in order to create the space that we use every single week, and that's what happens in the context of generosity. One of the fears when we built this building was, man, we give all this money to this building, then our giving to missions is going to decrease. Actually, the reverse happened. Let me show you this chart. I love this chart. Since 2012, when we moved into this building, we, um, our our uh, Christmas offerings, six consecutive offerings have been over a million dollars, with our last one being 1.5. So the reality is, as the gospel is multiplied and as people catch the idea of generosity, and when they see what it means to live by the grace that God can give, it actually increases the overall generosity platform for the church, for the people, 
and for the advancement of the gospel. Now, our vision is to consider what was the church at Antioch like? And from this place, the gospel was sent forth. Paul's missionary journeys always centered around Antioch. And we're asking ourselves, how can we use that as our model? And here are seven churches that we've already planted in the Indianapolis area. The ones marked in blue were the early ones, in New Palestine and Nehemiah Bible Church and Sovereign Christ Fellowship. The ones in orange were the ones that have been planted since 2015. You see, what happened is that there was a little bit of debt on this building. We worked hard to pay off that debt quickly. People gave additionally to retire the debt. And then we took our annual contribution to our debt retirement, and we simply rolled that over, not into our general operating budget, but instead to plant churches. We used that money, instead of putting it back into the budget, to now be deploying that out. And since 2015, we have planted College Park Fishers, College Park Castleton, College Park Greenwood, and now One Fellowship Church. And all of those churches are a product of the generosity of this church. 40% of what comes in, we send out, outside of this facility, outside of this particular ministry, in order to fund things that take place out in the world. We think that's just a really good stewardship of what God's entrusted to us. So, today we're going to talk about what does it mean to live generously. At the end of the text last week, in Acts chapter 11, it referenced the fact that the church in Antioch participated in an offering. The offering was for a group of Jews in the city of Jerusalem who were hit with a famine. And Paul began asking churches that he had planted to contribute to this fund to help these Jewish believers who were struggling. Now, Paul's aim was not just to meet their financial needs. Paul's aim was to send a clear message that Gentile Christians loved Jewish Christians because that was part of the beauty of what the gospel was doing, Jews and Gentiles loving one another and becoming part of the same body. Another church that Paul made the same appeal to is the church at Corinth. And that's why we're in 2 Corinthians 9. Because Paul wrote to that church as he anticipates visiting them and collecting this offering that he's been collecting from all the other churches, but it seems that Paul's a little concerned for the church at Corinth. Here's why. Because the church at Corinth was a strategic, wealthy, talented, and problematic church. Their giftedness was ahead of their godliness. And Paul writes to them because it seems that he's concerned that they sort of got on the giving bandwagon and made some sort of public statement that, yes, we're going to be involved in this generosity movement. And he was a little worried of what can happen sometimes, and you may have done this, where you get all excited and then you're like, oh, rats, we forgot to give. And then Paul would show up and it would be a really awkward moment where He'd have to remind them what they committed. They'd have to find ways to give what they had committed even though they hadn't prepared for it. And as a result, it could have been a very negative moment. So what Paul does is he writes in this chapter in order to help people to be generous and in order for them to see their way to not fall into some convenient or sort of self-justifying ways to shirk their commitment. Everyone knows that they should be generous. But if we're honest, we find really convenient reasons not to be. My first church, when I was a youth pastor, the senior pastor, had a a gift, if you will, for telling people 
about opportunities and inviting them to give. You just never knew when it was going to happen. It drove me nuts. I was young, a little selfish, didn't have a lot of money. And my strategy was, is I stopped bringing my checkbook to church. It's <laughs> a wicked thing to do. And that way I could say, wow, I give, but I don't have my checkbook, right? And tell me you've never done the same thing. We find convenient ways. Maybe you've said this, when I have more money, then I'll start giving. Or it's easier for wealthier people to give. I'm going to pray that they'll do it. <laughs> or it's just too tight right now to give. Or as I just illustrated, I keep forgetting my checkbook. So Paul writes to this church at 2 Corinthians because he knows human beings. He knows Christians. He knows that we, we tend to communicate more than what our fulfillment is really good for. And so he wants for them to see the importance of generosity. And so from this, I want to just help you understand some key thoughts regarding a mindset for generosity, the action of generosity, and then the grace of generosity. So those three things. So here's the first one, the mindset of generosity. Notice he says this, it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints. So again, the saints he's referring to are the saints in Jerusalem. For I know your readiness of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year and your zeal has stirred up most of them. So apparently, Corinth was like, we're in. And Paul used that, hey, the church at Corinth is in big time, and he used that to communicate to other churches, and Paul's worried that if this church doesn't make good on what they said they were gonna do, then the result would be that he would not only be embarrassed, but that the people, particularly in some regions of the world like Macedonia that were really in a hard place, they would be discouraged. So he says readiness. So there was this readiness, there was this mindset, this attitude. There, there was a strong yes, uh, a willingness to be involved, and as a result, their, their attitude was contagious. And so this is the starting point for biblical generosity. In order for a generosity environment to thrive, there has to be the right attitude or the right frame of mind. So can I just ask you to do a quick heart check? I've been talking now for about nine minutes about the subject of generosity. What's going on inside your soul? Do you find yourself kind of closing in or like, man, I can't wait till this sermon is done. I hate sermons like this. I hope he doesn't like get into this arena, so make me nervous. Or maybe you're thinking, what's his end game? Like, what's he driving at? What's going on here? Or is there a perspective of you like saying, you know what? Generosity is something I really need to think about. It's an important piece in my life that I need to, to be discipled in, and I'm thankful that the Bible speaks into it. In fact, 2 Corinthians 8 9 is the text upon which Paul leverages how our mindset should be. He says this, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. So what this means is that because of the grace that Jesus poured out on those who are followers of Jesus, then it just makes sense that those who have received such unbelievable kindness ought to be kind in how they act in every arena, especially how they handle the matter of their generosity. It just makes sense. So if you're here today and you're not yet a follower of Jesus, you need to know that because of the sacrifice of Christ, that not only causes a forgiveness of our sins, but it's supposed to create within us a willingness to be generous in lots of other ways. You may have run into believers who are not that way, and I would tell you, I'm sorry. On their behalf, I'm sorry that you found them to be stingy or cutthroat. It's not the way believers are supposed to act. Why? 
because everything that a believer has, they've received from God. In fact, that's what Paul argues in 1 Corinthians 4 and verse 7. He says this, what do you have that you did not receive? And the answer, of course, is nothing. Everything that you have, every possession, every ability, every talent, the fact that you're here is not because you're a self-made person. It's not because of some unbelievable talent so you just sort of figured out how to be able to, 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 to navigate your way through life. All of those things are a product of God's kind generosity to you. And biblical generosity starts with an attitude that reflects the graciousness of God to us through the person and work of Christ. So things like stinginess or hoarding resources, finding comfort and financial security, or maybe sort of a cutthroat survival of the fittest mindset, mindset. pride and thinking that you're a self-made person, these things can easily cause you to begin to curl your fingers around your resources. When you think about generosity, some of you tend to go towards enablement. You're so afraid of enabling people that you're really not empathetic at all. Some want to know, what's required of me? What are you asking me to do? What's the minimum that I can do so I don't feel bad versus here's an opportunity for me to have a big heart for the sake of the grace of God. So the starting point with generosity is your attitude, not just as it relates to money, but really your attitude about God's grace. And without the right attitude, generosity will never flourish. So Paul starts with their attitude, their perspective. Here's the second thing that he does. He also then moves from this attitude or this mindset into tangible action. It's so interesting to me that in verse three he says, all these things are true about you. I know of your zeal, I know of your readiness, but I am sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove to be empty in this matter so that you may be ready as I said you would be. In other words, he sends Titus to this church in advance along with the other brothers to be sure that the church is regularly collecting this money so that when he comes, there won't be like this huge commitment that they need to fulfill, but instead they would have already made preparations. So he's worried that the Corinthians might fall into the behavior that I'm sure is somewhat familiar to you when you make a commitment, you feel compelled, and then you just don't follow up on it. You feel the pull of the opportunity, and it isn't long, though, until the pull of other things begin to get in the way. Some of you make a lifestyle of this in that your financial world is in complete chaos, and therefore, whenever an opportunity comes, you don't know if you can give or how you can give. It's just so chaotic that you don't give, and yet you live in that chaotic world, and part of you likes the chaotic world because it gives you a really good excuse. And what Paul is saying here is, no, 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 there's an action that's important for you to be able to take. He even sends Titus and the brothers to be sure that this church is not only going to say, hey, we're all in, but also, and every single week, we're going to be sure we make provision. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 16, an earlier letter that he writes, he talks about the church storing away resources on a weekly basis in order to avoid the challenge of Paul showing up, and then their, their giving would be, neglecting, would be neglected, causing a really uncomfortable moment, or where suddenly now they're like, oh, we made this commitment, now we gotta give all this money. Paul doesn't want that, they don't want that. So now look at the rest of this text. He says, 
Verse 5, so I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead of you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised so that it might be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. Whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. And here is the critical text, verse 7. Verse 7 and verse 8 are probably the two most critical texts about generosity in all of the New Testament. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. When you came in this morning, you should have received a card. It looks something like this. I want you to pull that out a minute. What I did is I took my understanding of 2 Corinthians 9 and I tried to boil it down into a tool that you can use to both understand the concept of generosity and also for you to do some self-evaluation. I know whenever you talk about money, it feels just a little invasive. I get that. I feel the same way. I feel the same way teaching this to you. And yet this is an important thing for us to talk about because in the context of where we live, in the context of our uh, 21st century American culture, we have financial resources that's unlike anything that's been seen in the history of the world. And as a result, we gotta think about that. There's also all sorts of temptations and opportunities. More things for you to spend money on in our culture than ever before. And so that's why this is really important. Now, when Paul talks about generosity, here's what he says. He says essentially that there's two things that make grace-based generosity thrive. And the first is this idea of joy. God loves a cheerful giver. But the text also tells us that there needs to be some kind of thoughtfulness related to what giving actually looks like. So the idea is that Paul wants them to be cheerful, but he also wants them to be thoughtful. And when I think about grace giving, it is a beautiful combination of both joyful and thoughtful giving. Think of the cross. The cross was thoughtful, and Jesus, for the joy that was set before him, endured the cross. So <clears throat> there was a willingness on Jesus' part. So it's both thoughtful in terms of, I'm going to do this on purpose, and also joyful. And generosity grows the further we move along in our joyfulness and in our thoughtfulness. Now, some of you are mo more motivated by emotion. You see an appeal or you hear something and you're immediately inclined to give. You're moved emotionally. Some of us are more emotional givers. We're moved when we hear about this compelling need. And so we kind of give here and give here, but it's not very strategic. Other people are more obligatory in terms of how they approach their giving. They think more about percentages and what's the minimum. This is kind of a good basic way, perhaps, to start. I was raised in a home where we kind of had three different envelopes. 10% was for giving, 40% was for living, and 50% was saving. It's just kind of, that's like the gravitational force of a Dutch home. That's just kind of how you do things, right? <laughs> the Dutchie, that's right. My wife called me Dutchie this morning, Dale, so yeah. And then finally, there's this, uh, this category here, kind of a hard one. It's the category of unbelief. So some people don't give. Because if they're honest, they're afraid. Their money makes them feel secure. And when they give money away, they're nervous. Am I, am I going to have enough? Or they fall into unbelief because money does something for them. They, they, they can trust in it. Or the thing that they buy, it, 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 it scratches some kind of itch. Or the Bible kind of talks about this as idolatry. I really put my hope and my trust in that thing. 
So when you think about generosity, I think that we tend to one of four of these categories, and Paul is arguing for this grace-based category. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to take the card out, just look at it, and the home in which you were raised, which of those four categories was kind of where you landed? When you were maybe growing, if you're raised in a Christian home, or maybe you're not raised in a Christian home, but where, where would that be? And then what I want you to do is take this card, and I want you just to put a dot where your giving and generosity is at present. Just self-evaluation. Just put a dot. Are you kind of a more of an emotional giver over here? Kind of an obligatory giver? I mean, obligation isn't bad at one level, but your question is always like, how much do I have to give? You kind of look at giving like taxes. You got to do it, right? Or, or maybe you're over here, but you're, you're more thoughtful, but you don't have a lot of joy in what you give, but you're joyful and thoughtful, but more thoughtful than joyful, if you know what I'm saying. And then wherever you are in this, this sort of um, two-by-two two square, what I want you to do next is think, where would you like to be in the next year? Where would you like to be? And the goal would be that you move up and to the right in some way, maybe out of obligation, into grace-based giving, into emotion, grace-based giving. Let's just say you're here, and you'd want to be here between now and the end of this year. And there's a number of things that, um, tools that we have to help you to think that through. On the bottom of the card is a little spot on our website that has all kinds of uh, resources and tools. For instance, you could decide that you need to start giving on a weekly or bi-weekly basis just because it's a good thing for your soul. Or maybe you need to Get serious about developing a budget that includes a regular allotment for giving, and you need to say, you know what, this chaos thing, this is not good. I can't use this as an excuse anymore. Or maybe when you get your year-end statements from organizations that you support, you could just stop and to pray over those statements. Or you get the email support letters, instead of just filing those away or deleting them, just take 30 seconds and to thank God that you got to participate in the generosity movement that's helped to fund people in mission agencies and parachurch and even your own church. As I'm saying, increase your joy. Or for those of you who support this church ministry, as you walk in on Sundays, can you just walk to the doors and say, thank you, God, I helped to make this happen today. You're sitting here right now, and without your financial support, this doesn't happen. Or to be able to look at your charitable contributions on your taxes at the end of the year. Just take a look. If you deduct your taxes or you have deductions, look at your charitable contributions, look at your income, and just ask yourself, am I okay with that? Or do I want that to be different next year? Or maybe you could just put 20 bucks in your pocket and just say, Lord, I want you to lead me to someone that I need to give this to. Maybe someone, instead of giving them a traditional 18% tip or whatever it is that you do, you're going to wow them. You're going to double what you normally would do just because you want to live in a generous posture, especially if you prayed before the meal. Now, some of you are wondering, Mark, are you talking about this just because of the need for the church budget? I just want to call out that 300-pound gorilla in the middle of the room. The answer is no. That's not the main reason why. You should be generous with your time, your money, your treasure in every way. At the same time, I, I want to be a good pastor and that I want to be unapologetic that I believe it's right for you to give to your church and I believe it should be a priority. And why do I believe that? Three reasons. Number one, because the local church is plan A when it comes to God's desire to reach the world. More than any other nonprofit, more than any other parachurch, as valuable as they are, parachurch entity, God's main way to reach the world, plan A is 
the church is the local church. And if the local church isn't successful, and that happened across the board, God's plan to reach the world would be greatly hindered. Here's the second reason. Why should you support your church? Because the church is the main place that you receive spiritual nourishment. It's the main place that you receive spiritual nourishment. And it just seems to me that if on a regular basis you're helped spiritually, then you ought to be a part of helping to provide for the material support of the church from which you receive nourishment every single week. That just seems not only right, but it seems appropriate. And then third, because the church is the strategic pooling of resources of people of like-mindedness. So we're able to do things together that we could never do on our own. At the end of this message, I'll give you some examples of things that our church has been involved in that are absolutely unbelievable. I wouldn't have thought of them, I couldn't produce them, and I certainly couldn't have funded them without your help, us working together to do that. And it just seems to me that if you've covenanted together with a group of people and have said, these are the people that I agree with, we, we want to follow Jesus together, then it seems like the pooling of resources from those people to try and reach a group of people, try to do effective ministry under the authority of the elders, ought to be a priority in how we think about our giving. So yes, I do think that the local church should be a priority in your joyful and thoughtful giving. Maybe we haven't earned your trust yet for you to be able to give. I hope we could. Or maybe just the realization that regular and prioritized giving to your local church is in fact biblical and also good for your soul. I think it's good for your soul on a regular basis to be giving because it demonstrates what you really trust in. Let me show you this. Here's the third thing. There's grace in generosity. Look at 2 Corinthians 9 and verse 8. God is able to make all grace abound to you. I love this verse. It's been so helpful in my life so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely. He's given to the poor. His righteousness endures forever. And what is, what is Paul saying here? He's saying that when you give, it creates a gap. I mean, it creates a real gap. You have less money than what you had before when you give it away. That money can't help you with things. It can't buy things. It can't give you security. When you give, you create a gap. And what Paul says is when that gap is created, that God is able to make all grace abound to you, meaning that gap is filled by God's grace. In what way? Well, I've seen it happen over and over. It doesn't happen always this way, but you give and God entrusts more to you because you've proven to be a good steward. And you get to see the miraculous way in which God meets your needs in a way that you can't even figure out. And I've seen it happen over and over and over and over. I've seen it happen in my life, and I'm telling you some of the most beautiful stories of me believing that God is hearing my prayer and at work for me is connected to generosity moments where I've given beyond what I thought was able, and God was able to blow me away at the way in which he was able to give me grace far more than I could ever have dreamed. Or he gives you a heart that can simply be content. Instead of having financial resources, like I give because I'm only going to get, no, in some cases you give and God gives you the grace to, to learn greater levels of contentment or to remind your heart, I don't need money to be happy. I mean, come on. Some of the most unhappy people in the world are loaded. Just watch your TV, right? Just look at the entertainment section, the good parts, and find out what, what's going on in people's lives. It's a mess. So this thing, if I had more money, I'd be happier, just doesn't prove to be true. And what this says is, 
He's able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things, you may abound in every good work. Friend, if you think it's going to be easier for you to give later, it just testifies to the fact that you're not relying on God's grace now. And when you give, what happens is you trust in God's economy more so than your employer's promotion scale, more than the United States economy, that you, you trust in God's ability to take care of you. And when you see that, it not only demonstrates that God is at work, but it also is part of your overall spiritual development. Look at verse 10. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and will increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. Notice what happens. Here's what happens. You give, the person receives that gift, they rejoice, and in so doing, your money has created thanksgiving to God. Notice, you took American U.S. currency backed by the FDIC, whatever that means, and you gave that, which then created thanksgiving to God. I call this Christian money laundering. What happens is we take our money and we launder it for the glory of God. You mean I like that term? Well, Christian alchemy or something like that. Use that term instead. I like laundering. It sounds more punchy. Uh, so the, the money comes in, I use it for God's glory, and it turns into spiritual currency. And friends, what in the world could be better than that? To see people blessed, to thank God, and that my money got to be a part of that? That's unbelievable. So last Wednesday night, for example, we had 130 high school students and leaders. They were listening to Brad Merchant give a talk on same-sex attraction and how the Bible speaks into biblical identity. High school students. Now come on, do high school students need to understand a biblical view of same-sex attraction? Right, do they? How much is that worth to you? How much is it worth to have a high school student understand a biblical framework when he goes out into the world to think about this important category? That's worth a lot to me. And if you gave, you helped to fund that moment where high school students are being discipled in how to think biblically. One fellowship church, we're meeting in the incubator today, down at the ministry center, 130 people. You know how much it costs us to start a church? About $400,000. And then we give away all the people who go with that giving engine. I presume many of them are generous givers to our church. We give that away. And when you give, you have a part in seeing the gospel spread through Pike Township with our seventh church plant. And you, when you give, have a part of seeing that church's success and seeing them multiplied. Nehemiah Bible Church, down in the heart in Brookside, was planted out of our church in 2013. They have 180 worshipers. We set them up by giving them a facility they could use, and then a church gave them a facility that they're in now. And even today, through our local outreach, through our budget and our general multiply fund, we support that church at $25,000 a year, helping them to be successful in the urban core. So when you give, a part of your giving goes right to help Nehemiah Bible Church. I'll give you another example. Purposeful Designs, a business and discipleship center that David Palmer, one of our elders, started. It's a furniture-making company whose aim is to both rebuild lives by building furniture. Their first year of business, they did $37,000 in sales, and they trained six men. Now, if you're a business guy or a businesswoman, listen to this. In 2018, so 37,000 in the first year. By 2018, they did $1.4 million in sales impacted 49 men, women, and children through employment and training. 
in College Park through our general fund and through some Christmas offering dollars helped to set up that uh, business. It's a discipleship nonprofit in order to both provide jobs and to create discipleship. There's a salesman in uh, Salesforce. You want to applaud about that? I think we should. There was a, uh, a businessman at the, in the Salesforce tower when they delivered a piece of furniture and he saw the, the beautiful uh, table that had been provided, the, the person said, or that had been purchased, the person said this, isn't it amazing that this beautiful furniture was made by the men who used to be homeless in front of the building? Well, he didn't know what he was fully talking about because Jesse said, yeah, I was one of those guys. And he's a craftsman. I've heard this brother's story. It's remarkable of what God has done in and through him. And in fact, I learned this weekend that he actually is living in a house that's been renovated by one of our college parkers who give it to him at a below market lease rate. Part of the generosity, it's just even outside of the church, but part of the reason that Purposeful Design exists, that it can exist, is because of the generosity of the money that flows through our church to help things like that start. I would have never thought of starting a furniture-making business in Brookside, and I'm thankful that I get to be a part of a little part in helping to make that happen. So these are just a few of the stories that I hear all the time. And here's the thing. When you give to your church, what you end up doing is help to multiply the grace of God. So our vision, our aim, is to figure out what can we do to reach our world, to deepen our discipleship, to develop our leaders, and to maximize our resources. And in order for that to happen, what we need is a multiplication mindset like the Church of Acts, but also a generosity mindset that says, let's take our financial resources and let's platform the gospel as we give money away and deploy our leaders. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you for your grace and your kindness and your mercy to us. We thank you that you've given us so much more than we deserve. Oh God, we thank you for your immeasurable, immeasurable grace to us in the person and work of Christ. So help us, Lord, not to have stingy hearts, hearts that tend to curl our fingers around our resources. Lord, I trust today that I've been both faithful to this text and where we are as a church that our people would understand my heart and desire to see us be a generous people, not just to our church, but to all sorts of entities and people who are doing really good gospel work. So God, help us. There, there are some who are in the middle of sort of a, a gap, awakening moment, realizing that I need to trust you, Jesus, for what my life needs to look like as I consider how to give in a way that I've not given before. And Lord, forgive us when covetousness and idolatry and just selfishness takes over and it just gets the best of us. We see it, we feel it, and we don't want it to have its hold in our life. So help us to give, to slay the yearnings and the desires so implicit in the longing for money. Lord, this love of money is the root of so many evils, so grant us grace to not be named among those who fall into its trap. So God, we pray now that you'd make us people hungry to follow you. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.